our voice. Our future. Join us as we explore the real power of Youth Rising. Youth Rising. The Youth Rising podcast by NCS. Hey, I'm Eleanor and welcome to Youth Rising by NCS. This is a podcast for young people by young people. In this podcast, you're going to hear youth-driven stories from right across England about the issues that matter to young people right now. The UK is looking pretty different from when we started this podcast all the way back in February. But thanks to technology and the fact that this podcast is made by a group of teens who actually know how to use it, we've been able to continue making the show throughout lockdown, obviously whilst adhering to the government's guidelines. Now, I'm going to let you in on a bit of the behind the scenes of Youth Rising here. The theme for this episode was actually decided long before lockdown came into place. But once we were told we have to stay in our homes, this topic felt even more important for us to talk about. Because how are you meant to stay in your home if you don't have one? Yet this episode is all about homelessness. This is a huge topic, so we're going to be hearing three interviews on homelessness. We've got Callan, who's finding out about homelessness in Sheffield and how charities are adapting since the lockdown. We've got Pubadika, who chats to the YHA, who have transformed their youth hostels into emergency housing. Then we've got the Bloody Box Project, who spoke to Sophie all about period poverty. And if that wasn't enough, we've also got a great lockdown lowdown for you too. All about acts of kindness. So much good content. But before we get rolling, I just want to remind you that this podcast is happening all thanks to NCS, the programme for 16 to 17-year-olds that helps to turn all those no-you-can'ts into no, we can. So when I first started looking into writing the intro for this first interview, I was blown away by the statistics. So if you'll indulge me for just a second, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. According to the latest research by Shelter, there are an estimated 320,000 homeless people in the UK. Now, rust sleepers, which is probably what you imagine when I say the word homeless, are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to talking about the issue. But there are between four and 5,000 people who sleep on the street in any given night. And around 85,000 households are stuck in temporary accommodation. And that doesn't even account for what's known as hidden homelessness. People sleeping on sofas, staying with friends and etc. It's a big, big problem and it's growing. Our reporter, Callan, chatted to Jonas Baker, a social worker in Sheffield, who works with the Revive Cafe for the Homeless. Firstly, we're going to hear about the work they do and we're going to drop back in at the end of the episode to hear about how they've had to adapt since the coronavirus outbreak. Note, we did have a few audio problems with this interview, but it shouldn't distract too much from the great discussion. Okay, so hello everyone, and today I'm joined by Jonas from Revive Cafe, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about the problem of homelessness, um, a little bit about the work they do, and in the second half, focusing more on the pandemic and how that's really affected things. So first things first, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your organisation and what you do? Hey, yeah, so I'm from Revive Cafe. Uh, We're a little soup kitchen in Sheffield. Um, The whole idea of us is that we sit down and we get to know the guys who are coming in. Uh, We share meals with them um, and we share our stories with them and try and just build relationships. And then through those relationships, 
try and signpost them onto other organizations that are better equipped to help them in the day-to-day. Awesome. So when did you start operating and what sort of changes have you noticed since then? Um, So I started doing this kind of work with homeless people um, nine years ago um, through a local church. Um, But Revive Cafe itself has been running for about five years. Um, So when we first started Revive Cafe, the first ever time we had eight people come along. Um, But now we're getting like 50, 55 people every time we open. So there, there is sadly a demand for it. And I think definitely just in terms of, and I can only really speak about Sheffield, but like when I first came to the city, um, compared to now, there's a lot more people on the street. There'll be a lot more people noticeably begging. Yeah, it definitely seems like the situation's got worse over the years. That really nicely links into the next question, basically about, um, obviously it's more prevalent in certain areas, like you were saying with Sheffield, just that... Mm. Are there any particular areas you found to be more prevalent or more of a problem, um, as you were saying, like Sheffield? Um, Because I'm sure it completely would depend. Like, same with us in Lincoln, it's very noticeable as well. So, yeah, are there any areas you found to be more prevalent as an issue? Um, So I suppose it depends, like, what you look at when you're talking about homelessness. Because I think when the average person on the street thinks about what homelessness is, the first thing they think of is the guy in a big coat who's sitting mm. on a street corner, who's got like a little cop out in front of him, um, maybe a bottle of like, you know, something, something in his pocket. And that's a, like a really, really small subsection of what homelessness is. Mm. So like the, the thing that we're talking about there is the people who are sleeping rough on the streets and there's a really complex issue there. But homelessness doesn't just affect those people. Homelessness is people who are sleeping on sofas. They're the kids who are leaving care and haven't got anywhere to go. They're the women who are in domestically violent relationships and are having to flee their homes. There's so many different people who could come under the banner of what homelessness is. And I think one of the issues that we have when we talk about homelessness is how do we define it and what do we define it as? Because you can get, you know, it it can become a numbers game otherwise. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if you're in the city centres where rough sleepers are quite noticeable, where they'll be outside every cash point, they're there because they want to get some money. Like it's quite simple, but we don't see the rural side of it or the, you know, the people who are struggling just out in the suburbs. So I'd say it's a, it's a nationwide issue, but it is in terms of just that visibility of street sleepers, it's way more noticeable in city centers. But yeah, I I think it shouldn't just be boiled down to that. hundred percent. Okay. So what do you think are like the main causes of homelessness um, and the real things that really bring it to be like one of the major issues? So yeah, that links in really nicely with kind of what I just said, like, because there's so many, the spectrum of homelessness is so wide. um, There's no like one main issue. I mean, like I've, I've met so many people over the years um, and been lucky enough to build relationships with people uh, Mm. on the street and just get to know them and their stories. And I'd, I'd say out of that, uh, what seems to be one of the main reasons is relationship breakdown. Mm. And a lot of the time, the, these people might get into a relationship. They might then move into the same flat um, that might be council owned. And then when that relationship breaks down, one of them kind of has to go. And if they've got nowhere else to go, if they've got no family support system, like most of us have a family support system, like, you know, we all know either friends or family that we can rely yeah. on. Whereas a lot of these guys don't have anyone. And I talked to them and they've lost contact with their kids. They've lost contact with their mum and dad, with their siblings. And it's, yeah, it's like, it's heartbreaking because, mm. you know, I've been through tough times in my life and yet I've always been able to fall back on people. Um, but there's, there's loads of little side issues, really. I mentioned before that 
care leavers. So kids who go into care are much more likely to end up on the streets than kids not in care. Um, they've already had a really tough start to life. And then there's that there's that continuing problem as they grow older. I mean, the issue of debt is crazy. Gambling, people finding themselves just with no money, having to go to loan sharks, all that kind of thing, mm. um, being unable to pay their rent. There's one really weird phrase that you might come across when talking about homelessness, which is called intentional homelessness. And it's essentially when the council that the person is in deems that person to have intentionally made themselves homeless. Through their actions. Yeah. There are very, 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 very few people that I've met who would choose to spend their life on the streets. Oh, no, very, 100%. Very few. Um, I completely agree with the support network as well. I think it's so important. Can you, uh, what types of homeless people come to the Revive Cafe? Is it just rough sleepers or are there some like other subsections as well? Yeah. I love that, man, because that's um, that's the heart of Revive Cafe is that mm. we welcome everyone and anyone in. We've seen like a change in the types of people that we get over the years. So we do have rough sleepers who come along. We have people who are just a little bit lonely. We have a lot of older folk who come along and just want to sit and chat. There's one amazing man, like I won't say any names. Every volunteer who helps at Revive Cafe has definitely had a chance to sit down with this man and have the story of his life, how he was a minor, how he's a teacher, how he was a lorry driver, <laughs> how he was a this, how he was a that. And um, we, we get a lot of people like that who just want to come in and share their lives. So we, yeah, we get, we, you know, we get people completely across the spectrum, whether they're on the street, lots of issues going on, you know, including um, drug use and alcohol use and all of that right across to the older guys who just want to chat. Okay, so you've touched on it before in some of the previous questions, but why are spaces like Revive Cafe so important to combat the problem of homelessness? Yeah, uh, another beautiful question. Um, homelessness is so complex that you can't just have one solution. It would be great if you could, but I just don't mm. think it's realistic. There's lots of different issues wrapped up in it in terms of like where your accommodation is or whether you've got uh, health problems or drug misuse problems. I personally think that one of the biggest issues is isolation because really just on a little side tangent if you go to someone who's on the street and you say right i'm going to give you a home and you move them out of that area and you put them into a home what you're doing is not only giving them a home which is good but you're taking them out of their support system because even though it may seem flawed you're taking them away from their friends you're taking them away from their even possibly family at some points and you're mm. transporting them away and you're putting them somewhere else and not only are you doing that you're also saying do not go back to that group of people because they will drag you back down. And what you're doing is you're causing potentially a new problem in just isolation. And I think one of the key things that soup kitchens do, such as Revive Cafe, um, we're part of something bigger as well called Restore. What these kind of charities and groups do is they, they build relationships with people and they focus on combating the isolation because isolation is just horrible, man. Mm, like, I think we're, we're all experiencing that now. Uh, yeah. Like, it's crazy to be stuck in a house and to not be able to get out. And we are all so shocked at this. And yet there's a lot of people who experience that on a daily basis. So true. Some really fascinating stuff there. We're going to be coming back to Jonas and Callan at the end of the episode to find out how the pandemic has changed the situation for the homeless and those projects working with them. This podcast has had to evolve since the lockdown came into place. We've all had to stay indoors and find new ways to communicate, which, while it might seem frustrating not being able to see one another, we also have to remember that being able to isolate is a real privilege. 
we heard from Jonas that homeless isn't a term for just rough sleepers. There are many vulnerable people with unstable or dangerous housing situations, making lockdown incredibly difficult. We're now going to hear from Anita Kerwin-Nai from the Youth Hostel Association, or YHA. Now, I know what you're thinking. Eleanor, not quite sure I follow this link. Isn't the YHA for holidays? Well, normally yes, but since the lockdown, the YHA have repurposed their hostels to house the homeless, vulnerable and NHS workers. Pubadika found out more. Hi, I'm Pabadika here. I'm joined with Anita from the Youth Hostel Association, who's here to chat to me about the youth hostels and what they've been doing to help during the pandemic. So I just wanted to ask you, what is the Youth Hostel and who are the Youth Hostel Association? The Youth Hostel Association, let's start there, YHA, and in fact it's 90 years old this week. We're part of an international network, which is around low-cost, affordable accommodation. Ironically, in a time when we can't touch people, we can't share much, we're about sharing dorm rooms, we're about sharing spaces we're about sharing kitchens and we're a lot about sharing connections and getting people in connection with each other but also in connection with the outdoors and with nature so in England and Wales 153 places to stay from castles through to small little shacks in the back of beyond through to massive hotel type accommodation in some of our big cities we're a youth charity but you don't have to be a young person to stay with us so our membership goes from naught to 100 I think. Why 104? It's very specific. No, no. It's it's very specific in that that is literally the age of one of our members at the moment. So actually, if there was anybody older than that, they could stay. But I think that just happens to be the oldest I've heard of. Um, So another important question. Are there any misconceptions about youth hostels? Loads of misconceptions about youth hostels. One that the title, youth, I said it earlier, but actually they're for all ages. We've got a particular focus on getting young people out, that they start their adventure and travel journey. Secondly, is that a lot of families use us. It used to be that you used to have to do chores at youth hostels. If you wanted your dinner, you had to peel the potatoes. Now we actually do have cafes. You don't have to do chores. You don't have to strip your own bed. There's still a community feel and community spirit, but you don't have to do jobs. That's a big piece. And also one of the things people don't know is you can hire a whole youth hostel out. So you could technically hire a whole castle out for a group of 30, 40 people for the weekend. Yeah, I think that sense of community has become all the more important given the current conditions, to be honest. And it's, people are beginning to value that more. I think it's, well, it's true, isn't it? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I think that's true of nature and the outdoors. I think you see these people now that are desperate for their hour outside every day. But I do think that sense of community, of being with others, being with different groups... How has this changed during the pandemic? The services you provide, how have they changed during the pandemic? Well, massively. So actually at the moment, we can't open our hostels for normal holidays at all. So as an organisation, we've had to think differently about what that means for us because we sell our hostel spaces. So that's quite important for us. But also, what do we need to do differently to help people? Um, One of the things that became very clear very quickly is a lot of vulnerable people, homeless people, people with other problems that needed somewhere to stay during lockdown. So a lot of our hostels have been handed over to homeless organisations and local authorities to support homeless people during this stage of the crisis. But some of our smaller hostels have been used for other things. So some of them have been used for key workers. You know, at the moment, we've got the whole thing around feeding Britain. So we need workers to be out in the rural areas to pick crops. So we're looking to see how our hostels can host those. So that'll be a different set of hostels. So what are the values of the YHA and how have these directed your actions during the pandemic? Okay, well, our our values, our history is about being at the centre of our communities. 
that's ever been true. So we are a community organisation. We're a member organisation too. So really proud of the number of things we've done. Our values have driven us in a number of ways. Another piece we've looked at, um, sounds strange. We have loads and loads of duvet covers that we get rid of every year because we have a lot of bed linen. And uh, one of the things that came up is we got approached to see whether that linen, rather than doing what we normally do with it, which is kind of sell it per pound, could be used to make scrubs. So it's all been cleaned professionally, and that's now being used as scrubs, made into scrubs for uh, hospital workers and care workers. So across the piece, what we're trying to do is apply our values, which is to be creative, to be innovative, to be at the centre of communities, to try and look at doing things differently. Um, Has the YHA ever done something similar in the past, like at the current times we have the pandemic but perhaps during the war something along those lines well two actually so we faced a number of small crises we've done a number of things but during the war our hostels were requisitioned for workers and a whole range of our staff got involved in things at that time or our volunteers got involved true during the foot and mouth pandemic too when we closed down we then had to help with rebuilding the rural economy i think we've always you know we've survived crisis because we are a movement the idea of people connected to people it's actually the communities around us so whether it was during the war whether it's during foot and mouth we have always been the team of people almost in the background working I mean that reflects on the current situation as well considering nowadays we have a lot of key workers that would normally go unnoticed yeah. being recognized for their work that their daily work that would normally be regular work that's more yeah. important nowadays so I have another important question for you why do you think youth hostels are important I think they're important for a range of reasons. So I came to the Youth Hostel Association about 18 months ago to help them with their new strategy. I went to youth hostels when I was young and I come from an estate in the centre of Brighton. I hadn't travelled. My family couldn't afford travel. They couldn't afford to take holidays. And for me, going to youth hostels was an affordable way of travelling. It was a way of meeting other people. It was safe. But it was also, and I see this now in the young people we work with, whether they're NCS, because we do work with a lot of NCS young people, whether it's young people travelling from overseas. We are affordable and we're in stunning and amazing locations that a lot of people often don't get to. That includes the countryside, but it also includes coast, it includes cities. It's about access to museums, to the outdoors, to nature, things that a lot of people take for granted. And for me, I came to YHA because we work with a million young people, or a million people every year, half a million young people. And for me, that's a massive number to start with, but we want to get even more young people out and we are the way of doing, we are the way of doing that. I'm looking forward to um, trying youth hostels out in the future. Thank you so much for chatting to me, Anita. It's really great to hear about companies like the YHA. No, that's, that's really good. And well, NCS likewise and your work likewise. And thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Anita and Pubadika. We're so lucky in this country to have great organisations like the YHA. I'm definitely going to check them out when we come out of this. The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. You're listening to Youth Rising by NCS. We're now going to hear about something that might be a bit closer to home for some of our listeners. Period poverty. This is obviously a big issue within the homeless community but it's also far wider reaching than that. It affects women and girls throughout society. Sophie chatted to Catherine from the Bloody Box Project to find out more. Hi, I'm Sophie here and I'm joined with Catherine from the Bloody Box Project, who's here to chat to me about period poverty. So Catherine, what is period poverty? 
Um, so period poverty is basically the lack of access to menstrual products. Where does the problem of period poverty lie? Is it just on the streets or is it more far-reaching? Um, I would say that it is more far-reaching and sometimes not as obvious as we think. So, for instance, when I speak to people about period poverty and I'm like, oh, did you know like one in 10 girls miss school because they can't afford menstrual products? Everyone's like, what, really? Um, But then when you go into the um, nitty gritty of it and be like, oh, sometimes um, these households can't afford to provide their children with menstrual products every month. Then everybody's like, oh, okay, I understand that. But it's like, it's crazy that it is quite close to home. So it's not just homeless people that suffer from it. It can be young kids that are in low income families. It can be refugees and it can also be people in your work place so it is a lot closer than we think wow that's crazy so why is period poverty important to campaign for and for people to be informed about it because it's a natural process and we can't control like people that menstruate can't control it but for some reason it's not dealt with as if it's a necessity it's not dealt with as being a basic human right where it should be um we should be able to have access to menstrual products because we can't control what comes out of our body, just like toilet paper. Also, it's important to campaign for it because we don't talk about it enough. And I think that's why the issue is seen as small because we don't talk about it. And um, that's not our fault. That's not menstruators' fault. It's just we haven't been given the platform. So uh, how does the Bloody Box project work? We basically supply offices, schools, colleges and universities with boxes and we then give them the freedom to choose what charity their donations go to. So we work with a system in which we get people that we call bloody ambassadors who are passionate about tackling period poverty and want to bring a box into their place of work or place of education and basically are the ones that encourage their peers and encourage their colleagues to donate every month. For instance, we would encourage our bloody ambassadors to encourage their colleagues to just remind them to donate every month. Kind of the vibes of like, if every month, if you buy yourself a menstrual product, buy somebody else one. If you don't menstruate, start buying them monthly for somebody else. Yeah, that's really cool. So how has the current climate of COVID-19 impacted your campaign? Um, it's impacted it quite a lot, actually, because obviously um, the places where the boxes live are currently closed, which means that they, there are no donations going to these charities that hand these donations out. We are currently working to try and communicate to local supermarkets and supermarkets to get the boxes into stores so that when people are doing their essential shops, they can also donate. That's really amazing to try and get them into supermarkets. So I think that change it drastically. Um, So for people who are listening who want to help, how can they? Are they best donating products or donating money? So I think the straight answer is in this current climate, I would say probably donating money. So people, I don't know if you've heard of Bloody Good Period, but they um, take money donations and then they buy those donations. I think the good thing about um, Bloody Box when prior to COVID-19, but the good thing about it is that it kind of brings that sense of community, everybody working together to get these donations and send them every month. So um, are you involved with any schools? Um, Directly, no, but we have had, um, we do have some bloody ambassadors that have taken their boxes into their schools. Is expanding into education something you'd be interested in in the future? Um, Definitely. September 
last year, um, the government decided to start supplying schools with free menstrual products. And I think that's a great start, but you can't just provide free menstrual products. You also need the education behind it and also empowerment. And I think empowerment is something that's missing from schools. So for instance, giving people that menstruate that courage to ask whilst they're in class, can I go to the toilet because I need to um, change my pad or I need to change my tampon or even saying the word pad or tampon and saying the word period is still something that a lot of um, people are scared to do not even young people but grown people are scared to do so I think work in schools is a big thing and it's something that we would love to do it's great that the government are now providing free menstrual products but I think it also needs to be backed with more education and more empowerment for young people yeah, 100%. Um, have you noticed a change in opinion since you started the project? I would say yes. So I would not put myself as an expert on periods because I purely um, stumbled upon this when I was sitting there thinking, oh, my periods are really bad. And then I was like, oh, imagine homeless people. They must have it really, really bad. And I was like, yeah, this is a thing. Um, and then I looked <laughs> more into it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, it's really like a thing. So then when I talk to people, they kind of have the same reaction that I had when I first kind of started to realise how like period poverty is a thing. And I think it's a bit of a ghost problem. Like you don't notice it until you notice it, if you know what I mean. Until somebody says it, then that's when you kind of realise that this is actually a problem. Like I menstruate, but until two years ago, I didn't really know the extent to what this problem was. I think the change that I've seen is that literally people being like, oh my God, this is a problem. Yeah, 100% agree. I think definitely about two years ago, that was when I started learning about period poverty. Uh, it was such a taboo topic. And I remember when mm. I did my NCS in summer, um, we did it for our social action. Um, yeah. And I remember going around and talking to people about it, they're like, why, why do you want to talk about it? And I'm like, because it's a serious <laughs> issue. And they don't realise how big of an issue it is until they start learning about it. Um, so thank you very much for chatting with me today, Catherine. I really enjoyed the conversation. No, all oh my pleasure. Like literally any excuse to talk about periods, I'm here. Thanks, Catherine and Sophie. Period poverty is totally a topic that is not on enough people's radars. So really great to hear about projects like the Bloody Box Project. Now, at the top of the episode, we heard from Jonas, who was chatting to Callan, about homelessness in Sheffield. When the government set the lockdown rules in place to protect people from COVID-19, I'm sure you can imagine how difficult that news must have been for those on the streets or with uncertain living conditions. We're going to rejoin Jonas and Callan now to hear more. So since the uh, pandemic, are you surprised by how quickly accommodation was found for so many homeless people as well? I was. I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised, though. In the space of about two weeks, it felt like in Sheffield, a lot of the guys that I know who have been sleeping rough and really struggling to get accommodation throughout the years were suddenly granted these hotels because hotels just open their doors and welcome people in, which was, yeah, really fantastic. And um definitely don't want to take away from that the thing that does slightly worry me on that is that it's a short-term solution it's a sh- it's shelter mm. but it's not support and mm. i really worry what's going to happen when all this is over and when mm. that scheme stops operating are these guys just going to sort of be turfed back out i really hope there's some like long-term solution planning going on right now 
For yeah. sure. So how have you found the experience of working with the homeless both before the lockdown and after? Have there been any sort of changes or has it been very similar? Um, it's been it's been so different. It's been really tough actually. Like I say, like one of the, the key tenants has been building relationships with people. I really believe that's that's the most important thing. And we're not allowed out of our houses. <laughs> uh, we're not allowed to go see people. Revive Cafe, when lockdown started, we we ran once right at the start of lockdown and we were allowed to as key workers. However, the site that we operate out of, which is the main homelessness hub in the city, a place called the Cathedral Arch Project, basically had to close its doors. So we mm. weren't allowed to use their site anymore. And just speaking on behalf of them, I know they've had to massively change. You know, they open Mondays to Fridays. They have amazing facilities there. They've got support workers there they've got dental hygienists there they've got a doctor that comes in once a week um and when social distancing first came into play they adapted really well and they basically like opened up all the rooms they could and set everything two meters apart and only allowed a certain number of people into the building that then had to close down they then were making meals on site and giving them through the gate and literally just asking people to come once at a time give them a meal go away but then they had to stop that as well and it's just been it's been quite sad as we've still seen the decline of what's been able to happen yeah Um, they're still working though they're still they're still doing their stuff they're still prepping food and they're giving it to housing associations and supported housing schemes but they're still pumping out whatever they can do it's just yeah we've all had to adapt and like i say like revive cafe had to close and we are closed for the foreseeable future the final question is basically, ultimately, um, how can we help on like an everyday level and also a long-term level as well? So I think this links in with why I really wanted to do this question. It's because, especially where I live in Lincoln, it's a massive problem. Like you pass the same like, group of people like, every day. You think to yourself, like, how can I actually help them? Like, is giving the money really going to be the best case to help them? Or should I buy them some food or that sort of thing or give to charities, that sort of thing? So I just uh, basically, just for everyone listening, um, what would you say is like the key way we can really help on just an average everyday level um, and maybe something more long-term as well. Yeah, I love that. Uh, <laughs> you need to want to do something, first mm. of all, I think. Um, you need to look at that and see a problem. You need to look at someone on the street and be like, "What? why has our society allowed this to happen? Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, You have to see it as an issue, first of all. Otherwise, we're never going to do anything. Um, so it's, it's great that you do. Um, I'm going to quickly tell a little story that literally happened to me yesterday. I popped down the shops. Um, as I was walking there, there's a guy sitting on the street who I recognize, but I don't know personally. And first of all, here's my one top tip. If you're going to get someone something, ask them what they want. Mm. Don't just get them something. If someone went into a shop and gave me a cheese and onion sandwich, I'd be like, get out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, again, just starting that conversation saying, hey, man, like, can I help? Like, what can I get you? And knowing what you can offer them as well. I personally never offer money. And I will mm-hmm. say that. Like, I will say to them, I'm really sorry, but I just don't give money out. However, I'm going to pop to the shops. What can I get you? I went and got him some chocolate. Rather than just give it to him and walk away, I just sat down you know two meters away just had a little chat with him asked him how he was doing asked him his mm. name gave him my name sounds really obvious and really simple but it, it just i think one of the biggest things that stops us is that from an early age we're taught to walk past which mm. is to maintain our distance and i think just fighting back against that like not doing that like mm. sitting down and getting to know them like if you're seeing the same guys every day that's beautiful because that means that you've got a chance to get to know them like mm. it's hard it's hard when it's different people constantly even if like the first few times are pretty awkward even if they smell a little bit 
even if there's mm. you know even if you see a bottle of like whiskey sitting out of the pocket like mm. who really cares about that kind of stuff you know i i harp on and i harp on about the the relationship building but there's also another side to it where you've got these nationwide charities like shelter and crisis who do amazing work like working with these guys day in day out um helping raise them up um but then go even bigger as well they like lobby parliament they change laws and they do this kind of stuff crisis have been doing some like insane stuff working with government so there's there's so many levels that you can get involved with mm. and i would encourage anyone that if you do want to give money give it to those big charities that you can really trust that where you know the money's going to um who are going to be hopefully generations to come 100 percent, and exactly what you're saying about like the connections and stuff like that i think that's so unbelievably important that can make a difference to anyone regardless of what they're going through so i completely agree with you okay so thank you so much for coming to talk to us today it's been so nice and thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight um <laughs> and thank you everybody for listening uh, thanks for having me Guys, what can I say? This has been a jam-packed episode. It's been full of amazing people doing a wonderful work to help some of the most vulnerable people in society get the essential things that they need. I know sometimes these situations can feel enormous and overwhelming. And when there's a pandemic on, problems feel even bigger. But if there's anything this virus has shown us, it's that hidden underneath it all, are people doing incredible things. So to finish, we wanted to share with you some acts of kindness that our team have been doing or have seen during lockdown. Hello, my name is Andy and during the coronavirus lockdown I've been doing shopping, posting parcels, letters, collecting prescriptions and a whole variety of things for the most vulnerable in my local community here in Dorset. Hey everyone, so my family and I have been doing some small acts of kindness. So my mum's been volunteering and making food packages. And my teachers um, are constantly posting on Google Classroom and making sure to keep us updated and also giving us kind of like positive news or quotes or things that we can do to keep ourselves going through quarantine and I think that I really appreciate that. I've also been volunteering for the British Red Cross amongst other organisations just to try and make the lives of other people in our community better during this difficult time. For my uh, nurses, uh, I did little thank you cards and wooden things and I gave it to them. An act of kindness I've seen is someone making jam and then leaving jars of it outside people's houses. I live right by a primary school and the teachers have got all the children who they have with them to write little notes on little pieces of paper. So as I was walking down the cutway which leads into the school, there was loads of little notes with really like sweet quotes and kind messages on there, which I thought was lovely. My favorite act of kindness that I've done this week is baking. We've been baking a lot lately, but um Everyone seems to love my bacon this week, so I just put a little extra smile on my face that I needed. I've also been going outside and having conversations with people, obviously two metres apart, socially distancing myself, but just talking to people and seeing how they're getting on, because I think during this whole coronavirus situation, we shouldn't lose that sense of community. You know, if we can have those conversations, but keeping ourselves safe, I think that's important. So that's what I've been doing, and I hope everyone's safe. Thanks guys for sharing those things with us. Trust me, it really, really makes a difference and we love to see it. 
Right, that's it from me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Youth Rising by NCS. Each week we're bringing you stories of how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting young people across England, from changes in our day-to-day lives to exploring our new futures. Next week is our last episode of this series. Can you believe it? I can't. (laughs) You will not want to miss it. We're having a little reflection on how the lockdown has changed us and talking about all the apps that have kept us going. Plus, we'll be bringing you one more lockdown lowdown. Don't miss it. Stay safe. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. By NCS.